Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. This is the first show of the year, uh, and it is not with Sam Thompson, but that show has been recorded, and it's only because my conversation with Sam uh, was very, very long, and I didn't have time to edit the whole thing before getting it out today. Uh, If you're a fairly new listener, you may not be aware of this kind of accidental custom, which is podcasting with my good friend Sam Thompson in the first show of the new year, but he will be the second one of 2024. In this episode, you will hear from Arthur Petherbridge. He's the founder of The Wild Order, as we discuss his journey from vegan to hunter and how he is trying to connect people or reconnect people with their food. Last year, we ran a few limited series, which was kind of a new thing for me. Um, we ran uh, From the Front Lines, which was supported by Rocky Talkie Radios. Incidentally, you can still get 10% off Rocky Talkie Radios if you go to rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness. That was me having conversations with people at the front lines of conservation in the field. Um, I just I happened to be in places where it was happening, and I think it made for some really interesting conversations. We also undertook the British Uplands series, which was probably the most ambitious and commented on podcast series that I've ever done. If you haven't heard it, go back a few episodes. It was six episodes uh, edited by David Shanks and co-hosted with my good friend Sarah Roberts, uh, all about the British Uplands. In big personal news, as we firmly closed the door on 2023, I finally wrapped my documentary Paid in Blood, which you will have heard me talk about many times over the last few years on this show. It is now done and dusted and doing the film festival circuit, and so far seems to be really well received by everybody who had pre-screening. As I look to 2024, I have a fairly busy filming and travel schedule um, coming up in the next few months, which means that I should be able to bring some new episodes from some very interesting places. So keep an ear out for that. But for now, thank you for the support and the downloads, and especially to the Patreon supporters who help make this possible. As is customary at the start of the new year, I will read out everyone who is currently supporting the show. And apologies in advance if I mess up the pronunciation of anybody's names, but I will try. James McDougall, Joe Gilmartin, uh, Jay Barber, doesn't say what your first name is, John T. Drew, Leslie Cumming, Dick X. Roma, Tyler Ritchie, Nick, just Nick, Ryan McDowell, uh, Omid, oh, I'm going to have a challenge with this one, um, Alcanazedi, Alcanazedi, uh, Rob Nelson, Fenella Lloyd, Andreas Ulm, Dermot Long, Ellen Freeman, Mark Zabrowski, who I actually just met for the first time last week. Uh, more stuff coming with Mark in the future. Eric Stewart, Eric Spicer, Matthew Nibb, Zach Buckaloo, Jens Haig, Thomas Cameron, James Marchington, Richard Barker, Richard McNeil, Jeff Kennedy, and Alex Cutts. Thank you to every single one of you at whatever level you support the show. Um, Yeah, you genuinely help make this show possible. And it's probably just worth pointing out that I've kind of shifted the Patreon, so it's not just support of this podcast, so this is the primary thing. Um, It's really in support of all the work that I do. And so uh, all Patreon supporters also got pre-screening to Paid in Blood. So if you missed that for some reason, go and look at your Patreon emails because there is a pre-screening link for you. Um, as supporters on Patreon. So you can have a look at that and tell me what you think. And with that, welcome to the first episode of 2024. My name's Arthur. I started uh, The Wild Order, as you know, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and as I was saying, I grew up an urbanite in London, vegetarian. Uh, okay. I had a bit of a wild journey through discovering that I wanted to be a hunter. And How long had you been a vegetarian? I was a vegetarian until I was 20. Like so from, from ever from until no- 20? From nothing till 20. Wow. Yeah. Was that just like, was that your household? Is that how you grew up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, both my folks, vegetarian, sister, brother, everybody still mm-hmm. are. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. 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 We've got people turning up. and we're, yeah, We'll, we'll find okay. out in a moment yeah. who that is. It's just rocked up. It's probably Mark. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere at a car pulls If it up. is Mark... 
then that means he's getting an extra shout out because he's been a supporter of the podcast for a long time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I think he's about to walk through the door. We've actually never met. Even finally, though we finally you'll meet. Yeah. So, um, wow. So what was the tipping point at 20? The tipping point was that I was in Borneo. I was working on a conservation project. All oh, right. And orangutans? It was orangutans. How did you know? It's just I'm trying to think what, what's in Borneo yeah. that would be conservation related. Yeah. And that's the only thing I know about Borneo. Yeah, it was for the orangutan appeal. Uh it was a research we were building a um we were building a research research station for the orangutan appeal. Okay. They were reintroducing orangutans into the wild that were, had been orphaned. Anyway, it was, you know, that's, that's going way off on a tangent. But, and you thought, I'd really like to eat some orangutan. Well, after, well, yeah, that would be pretty good. <laughs> that would be weird. It would be weird. I don't think it would taste very good. No, I don't think so either. Yeah, so we, we did that for a couple of months, and then I went off on my own, and I was really hell-bent on trying to just spend some time with the Penan tribe, which is a famous hunter-gather tribe over there really struggled to, to manage that but we did stay in some quite remote villages and I say we because I was with a friend of mine called Tom and uh, we were actually I think I've talked about this before but we were actually in this little village called Long, Long Lamai watching a Manchester United game as you do uh, it's you amazing know. the it's things thing. that unite yeah. people around yeah. the world and football is almost always one of them it is yeah uh, anyway and then this amazing bowl of wild meat just appeared on the table and I was obviously quite skeptical of it I hadn't really eaten anything like that before I'd sort of maybe tried a bit of chicken you know here and there and um, barely qualifies as meat really. yeah exactly and it just it blew my mind oh really it totally blew my oh, mind was it? Do you know? Well, the, it was difficult with um, language, but mm. it was some kind of deer, essentially. Okay, so it was yeah, venison yeah, yeah. of some description. Yeah, venison of some description, which kind of fits in quite nicely to what I do now. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was very mild. It was very, like, nicely cooked. Not much seasoning. It was just, like, a great intro. Was, You're like, this is delicious. Cool. It was, yeah, I was like... Well, the other thing is that I've also talked about is that all the men there and the women were like these gleaming like pictures of health mm -hmm. and i just felt like anemic and weak and like i always I was, had malaria i was going to ask you about this as we as we got on once you were going through your journey if you noticed a a health shift with that transition because often when you social media scrolling or whatever you see about the health shifts the other way round I've dumped the meat and now I'm, you know, healthier than ever. And we're seeing, there's a number, I can't actually name any of them, but there's a couple of high profile athletes in various descriptions or in various different sports um, who have made that shift and said how much better it's been for them. What going, say, to a plant-based diet? Yeah, and, yeah, but then equally I've seen it where after a year or however, whatever the period of time has been, they've gone back. Flips so back, yeah. It's interesting to know if you, a whole life, 20, basically a whole life, 20 years, and then making that change, what what did you feel in your body? And I realize that some of that's going to be anecdotal, but what did you yeah. feel? Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people say that if you've been a vegetarian for a long time, you, you know, you, you really struggle to eat meat mm. straight away. And as in like processing as it. As in processing it, and you can get sort of a bit unwell. Yeah, I mean, and that's unsurprising, goes really. straight through. Yeah. But actually, for me, it was completely fine. I had no problem with it at all. And uh, I think it was a slow burn. So I I didn't go, like, I didn't, it wasn't one day a vegetarian, then the next day I was Savage. like carnivore diet. <laughs> yeah. You know, that wasn't that wasn't my bag. It took me a long time to sort of build up into like not only enjoying meat, but knowing how to cook meat and finding the best places to buy meat and all those things. I was a complete had no idea. Had literally no idea. So um it it, it yeah, it was it was a long journey. But I, I think now these days the consuming meat feels absolutely right. I have more energy. I don't get ill very much. And when I was growing up, I got ill all the time. So, I mean, as you say, anecdotal. And maybe I was just a sickly child. Who knows? But um, these days, I've never felt better. So I would like to put that down to eating. Eating meat. Wild so, meat. <clears throat> wild meat. So, yeah. so uh, 20 years old, you had that experience. 
eating meat for the first time. What, is, what does that timeline look like as you're reintroducing it back into your diet? And how did you, you do it? Were you, did you take the view that you wanted to be conscious about where that meat was coming from? Did that come later? When mm. did the wild meat element come into it? I mean, because are you still living in London at this point? Uh, was it, yeah, London? I was living in London then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had no concept of kind of animal welfare or like getting good quality meat at that time because I just wasn't subject to that kind of world, you know, at yeah. all. Um, like it was very far removed from... And, and, and do, you, do you think that came because of the vegetarian background or more just because of your urban place? I think urban place, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, my folks had been meat eaters. They, okay. just, they just went Why did they the do? Way. Why did they make the switch? Well, uh, my dad slipped a disc oh, and wow. a Chinese acupuncturist said to him, you should stop eating meat. Okay. So he did. And my mum uh, was, she's an actress. They're, they're both actors, uh, but she was working on Emmerdale. No and, way. Yeah, yeah. And filmed an episode of that where they, they were doing like a lambing scene or something mm -hmm. like that. And then that night they were given lamb chops and she said, that's Can't it. Do it. Can't do it. I mean, I don't really like eating rabbit soon after I've done it. <laughs> because it smells like if you've done it with yeah, your yeah. hands, you've got that like. Mm. Uh. So I get it. Yeah, I get but, it. That, but that lasted. That wasn't just like a temporary thing for them. Yeah, I mean. To be fair, I hurt my back recently. And if someone told me your back will be fixed if you stop eating meat, I'd friggin' do it well, immediately exactly. because it's so debilitating. And then if it does fix, well, then you you're going to be like, well, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I would seriously consider you know, friggin' love meat, but back is so debilitating. So I get wanting to try something. Yeah. Did, did he ever get a slip disc again? No. Mm. But, you know, I mean, what can you say? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, where were we? Yeah. So your your trajectory from that to like reintroducing meat into your diet. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. So it was um it was a slow journey, like I was saying. I fast forwarding kind of six or seven years, I did randomly came upon Woodlaw, which was Ray Mears' oh, Ray Mears, company. Yeah. And I was kind of always been interested in the outdoors and like camping and doing all that kind of stuff. And went on this introductory to bushcraft or whatever it was. And we, at the end of the course, we all butchered a, a rabbit, funnily oh, enough. Okay. And we learned about snaring and that kind of thing. And I was just so hooked on the whole process. About was it with Ramey or one of his instructors? It was like a whole bunch of his instructors. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did, he did like show up at the end he you know, and hey, give, give a little Ray. like, hey, I'm Ray. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is always good value. And then from there, I started hunting because uh, I was living in Sussex at this point, I started, you know, shooting rabbits with an air rifle. Okay. And kind of went down there. And then I happened upon another company called Hunter Gather Cook, which I ended up working for for three years. I think I thought I've heard of them. Based in Sussex as okay. well. Um, Is that a similar concept to Woodlore? No. More they're, food related. They're like very food related. Okay. So it's just they just run day courses in. Mm kind of food and butchery and feathers and to fishing. connect people more to the food that they're eating yeah mushroom foraging days and that a kind full of stuff works. okay so i did a day with them got really into that didn't leave nick alone he gave me a job <laughs> i met lots of people through through them and then um got mentored became hunter did the dsc1 okay uh and then sort of the idea of the wild order kind of began to form a great name. for well that was an ex-girlfriend of mine who who should take um all the credit for that okay originally the idea was that um i was really fed up of shooting deer and having too many deer not knowing what to do with couldn't get rid of them i was like i really butchers weren't buying them game dealers were being difficult the price was terrible and so i thought what would be great is to ha to set up a social platform mm -hmm. where you could connect the buyer to the hunter directly mm -hmm. um and so there came the wild order because you would order be ordering wild being oh no way so that's how that name came about okay but it's almost more appropriate for what you're doing now well it is yeah, yeah. But, but and what happened with that idea was going to be an app but it just the all the red tape became way too much and i couldn't i yeah. couldn't make it work so but interestingly, at the same kind of time, I had met 
via social media, as we always do these days, Sam Thompson, mm-hmm. who's a good friend of yours and mine now. Uh, and he, I called him and I said, you know, I really have this idea about kind of forming a backpack hunt or connecting people to nature through hunting. And I want it to be sort of rough and ready and affordable and all these things. And he said, it's never going to work. It's never going to work. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I'll just, you know, sit on it for another year, which I did. And he called me back and he said, I think we can make it work now, Arthur. And so two two and a bit years later, this is where we are now. So um, explain, you're just about to have a week with guests. Mm -hmm. Explain what that looks like as the Wild Order and what that experience is. Because you've already had a week this season, haven't you? We've had a week uh, in December, just just gone. And we've got two coming up. so the week is, it's all about engaging people in hunting wild food uh, through a sort of educational journey. It's not just going out and p- pulling the trigger yep. and, and then like heading back to the lodge for a, f- a fancy dinner or whatever. It's about doing the, the full process. So mostly, I guess, the complete novices. Uh-huh. Um, we, yeah, they, I was going to ask you that. How did, how, who are the people? Yeah. Like who's interested in doing this? The kind of the spectrum of their the types of lives that they come from. I'm intrigued. Yeah. So we've had how many have we had? We've had um, up here where we are now. We've had twenty people come through our through through our door, as it were, and uh, we've got another twenty to come over the next couple of weeks. Generally, they're kind of urban urban people living in urban areas um youngish sort of 30s to 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 40s um and they are outdoorsy but not so not engaged in hunting in any way okay so a lot of these people have never fired a rifle never seen i think we had one We've had we've had a couple of ex-military people, so they've fired mm. rifles, but okay, they've never done anything count. like yeah, this. Yeah. Um, and then we've had one chap called Theo, great guy, who who's kind of involved in the world, but not heavily. So everybody else, complete novice. That's amazing. Um, which is what it's all about. And in fact, this week that we've got coming up, we've got a couple who've been on a previous course of ours in Suffolk, that we run in Suffolk, a place called Wickham Vineyards. They've just done their DSC one They've, oh, applied, so they've, really embraced they've applied for their farms license. They're coming up here. They're installing a gun cabinet. They, they've wow. like fully, which is like a huge success story for us as, as, as like the wild order business, mm-hmm. you know, progresses. That's exactly what we want. It's all about getting, it's all about boosting the image of hunting. That's what it's all about, mm-hmm. really. It's all about and how getting, it fits into the modern world, I suppose. <clears throat> exactly. And h- hunting in this country is in the UK. I feel coming from a non-hunter background mm-hmm. really needs a sort of modernization. It needs to some to, normalization to allow well. people yeah. that that weren't brought up in it to be to to be welcomed into it. And when I first started, I thought, "How on earth am I going to get into this? It's going to be impossible." Um, and it was tough. It took me years to get involved. Mm-hmm. And so the world order, and especially the hunter's experience, is kind of like a fast track, fully encompassing course into or experience into the hunting world where you learn everything from how to fire a gun on the range to skinning a deer to cooking a heart or mm-hmm. a loin or whatever it is. So, so hands-on cooking elements are within the week? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the days are mostly... If the weather allows, the days are just people are out on the hill, forestry blocks, stalking, sitting in high seats, doing that kind of thing. Uh, and then in the evenings, we go to the larder and we'll do lardering, lardering oh, deer. Oh, so actual process. So doing the finishing garlic from the hill. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in skinning? Um, so we do this sort of lardering process, taking all the um, the data that, that the estate wants to Yep together and then we'll leave the deer to hang for a while and then when all the guests are there one evening say on the, on the Wednesday we'll do a skinning workshop 
and butchering the deer into their primal cuts. Oh, amazing. You do that all in the big larder? We do all of that in the big larder. Uh, And then from there, we chuck all that meat into a big cool box, bring it up to the lodge and leave it in the cold store. And then the following night, we'll do full seam butchery workshops. So they'll be be breaking down haunches into the eight muscle groups, Um, you know, taking shoulders and... uh, trussing them up, deboning them, trussing them up, learning how to trim down a back strap or a loin, uh, all of that. And then on top of that, say the following night, we'll do maybe an offal workshop where we'll talk over the you know importance of eating offal, um, how to prepare it. Mm-hmm. And then usually we use hearts because it's kind of a very accessible mm-hmm. offal. It's not too strong flavored and all that. Yeah, it's not it. like a liver. It's not like a liver, and you can't eat much liver because it's pretty full on, isn't it? Yeah, it is a bit. Um, I'll tell you what, though. In South Africa, this is the first time place that I, I had it. They bride some, barbecued, um, mm-hmm. some liver that was just quite basically spiced with salt and pepper hmm. and honey. Honey? On the fire, on an open flame. Fresh, fresh from, yeah, fr- fresh like, from the kill. Fresh from the kill, from that day. <clears throat> and it, but it was cut into quite thin strips. So, you know, like you would cut halloumi cheese mm-hmm. into strips and cook it like that. Oh, my goodness. What was it from? Uh, God, I'm having to think back. I'm, I'm talking, I'm like 19. Oh, okay. like if I'm thinking back yeah. to the first experience, I think it was probably from a... It would have been from some small... Either an Impala, an Impala or a Springbok. And was I it did, mild, I did, was it I mild flavored? It. Or? No, I mean, it was, it was livery, but... Not, you know, that kind of iron, really quite strong iron edge that liver can have sometimes. It mm. didn't have that. Hmm. And I think it was the honey cutting through it. Honey is a great shout. Yeah. Might have to steal that. So try that. See if it works. Well, so we do um, this heart workshop. Uh, so we talk, talk the guests through how, how we like to prepare a heart. Mm-hmm. And then they all have one and they all. Do the, do the butchery process with a heart, put them onto skewers, and then we have barbecues outside. Oh, really? And they go cook them as their starter for their dinner. Oh, amazing. Which is great. And it really is something amazing about, I mean, as you know, I'm sure, when you put people around a fire, like everything changes. But when you put people around a fire and they're cooking, and then they've, but they've also had a hand in you know, either getting those hearts or you know, butchering those hearts, just changes the way people look at everything because it's really engaging in the process yeah it is and that's kind of the most important thing about the wild order it's like you're not just pulling a trigger you're learning how to make the most of what you're going out and getting the experience and it's and it's all it's all tied into a respect and the full learning process of what you know you and I probably now take for granted that other people are just, you know, blows them away. It's all in your experience. Yeah. 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 How do you find that the people who come on these experience weeks then take that back into their normal life? With with the exception of like the the couple that you said have now got their gun covered and they're applying. And there might be a bunch of them who are maybe never going to do that. I don't don't know because I've actually never met any of them. But being able to, now they have this deeper connection with their food what are they doing to put that into their day-to-day? Do you know? I yeah. guess you probably have follow-up conversations Yeah, with we them. do. And um, I think some of them probably slip back into their their lives and just it was just a great experience for them. But I, th- yeah. I, I hope that a lot of them um, go back to their lives equipped with gen- just more knowledge in many ways. So we talk a lot about venison particularly Mm -hmm. but also just other kinds of meats and the importance of like procuring your if you're going to buy venison procuring your venison from a from a good source as opposed to going to tesco tesco (laughs) which is farmed venison as is waitrose is it yeah so i recently i didn't i I mean i you very rarely see it in there anyway but i've never bothered to look where it came from so i i wrote like a very short podcast recently on this and uh podcast blog on this recently and uh so i did a little bit of research and all the big six supermarkets only do farm or park venison that is just so bad with the exception of audi that does wild highland venison 
And I have to say, there's actually nothing wrong with farm venison. Like, when done well, farm venison can be great. However, we have a lot of wild resource, particularly exactly. in this country, in Scotland, where we're sitting. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, shit. I mean, England has a phenomenal amount of deer yeah, as well, yeah. but not so much upland red deer. There, that's like there's a lot of fallow down there, and what I mean, there's a lot of red deer too. But we in Scotland have a huge resource that we actually are struggling to work out what the hell to do with it. And the price is terrible. And the price is terrible. I did not know, yeah. and I, it would be intriguing to find out why. Well, interestingly, I won't name the estate down south because I'll get in trouble. But um, I, I've the somebody I did a DSC two my my personal DSC two with uh, now works on an estate down there, <clears throat> and they cull for Waitrose. Okay, parked there. And apparently, Waitrose put an awful lot of money into market research, as you'd imagine they would, mm-hmm. and. The consensus was that the general public were happier to buy park or farmed venison than wild venison because it it was like, oh, well, we're not shooting little Bambi out in the wild. Kind I of doubt those thing. people are only because they've been asked the question: Are they making exactly. a call? There's because I didn't. I it? didn't even know that because I've never bothered because I don't buy venison, obviously. Mm. <laughs> so I've never actually bought venison in my life. I'm on. Not, I mean, I bought venison, but in the skin. Yeah. Um, I doubt anybody's looking to see if it's farmed. Actually, you know, they're being forced to make that bit of research. They're being forced to make a decision because that decision is being put in front of them. But if there's someone who's making a choice to buy venison, I, they probably don't even know the They're difference. Just like, well, venison. Yeah. 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 Exactly. That's fascinating. Though. So I think that's probably why. Yeah. But going back to your question about our guests, mm. um, so one of the things that we also do is that we, every guest that leaves our experiences, whether they're in Scotland or Suffolk or Sussex, um, have the opportunity to take home a big bag of venison okay. with them. A lot of the guests that are with us in Scotland will take their whole beast home. Not in skin, yeah, but butchered process. down. So do a lot of them drive here? Pretty all of them drive here, apart from a handful that will fly, but they'll rent a car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Can they t- take venison back on the plane? Uh, we have had some people fly venison back to London. I don't think it's London. an issue. It's yeah. fine, it's fine within the, the country. country. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if you're... Um, you probably want a vacuum packet or something. Which we do for them. You do? Yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an arduous task, but we do do it. How did people... Okay, maybe maybe I should ask another question first. So you wanted to create this situation where people could have this experience. Mm-hmm. What was the jump-off point of, okay, there is now an ability for people to book places and we're going to do this thing? Because oh, I think I was probably aware of you maybe two years ago, mm. possibly. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I mentioned, me and Sam were having this conversation where I was looking for somewhere that could host what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and obviously it kind of goes against a lot of, not goes against, but it's a kind of, it's unusual. It's not really done mm-hmm. in in how, in how in the way that I wanted to do it. Um. So, yeah, it was all about finding the right people to do it with and, and that, and you know, happening upon Sam Thompson managed that, you yeah. know, because he is the most passionate person yeah. and larger than life. And, and then with, with my concept and, and him saying, yeah, well, that can work, um, we kind of figured it out. And then, you know, I built this idea around the wild order and the branding and all the rest of it and people just you know they they keep coming they they sort of how do people find out about it is this a social media win yeah really yeah it's all social media i mean there is now and then obviously word of mouth now now there's word of mouth but to begin with it was just all instagram really everything wow and still pretty much it's all through instagram which I hate to admit, but it no, is the I, case. I mean it, it's good that it has a, a good place. I, I I know that it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to reach audiences, whatever that audience. Oh, we might get be. banned all the time. Oh, you do? Yeah. What for showing guns? Or? We're not really sure because they they kind of just gent put that general. Um, this incites well, this is, violence. This is you know whatever. It's never happened to me. 
Well, you're lucky. But maybe I just, I mean, I'm not, I, mean, I don't you, really put any hunting stuff on. And you might not be running ads. I'm not running ads. Yeah. So if you run so an you ad, run ads. we do run ads um, for our courses. Okay. Um, I guess that's why it probably and if it, repeatedly if it, in my feed. If it drops into somebody's feed that maybe is not comfortable They're with hunting, then they could report that. And then, but you know, we've never had, a, we just always object to it. We appeal. And it gets. And it's always fine. It's just a pain in the ass. Oh, what a pain. Um, but yeah, it's all through that. Uh, and obviously, you know, other people that we work with, people like Mark, people like Sam, people like yourself, you know, the word gets out and people. You jump on a podcast. Jump on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't done many, you know, but. Um, that's great. I think it's uh, great. There's been such a positive uptake of it. There's there is definitely the the most surprising thing for me. I mean, the first I took a big risk, you know, financially and well, because you have to you have to book the week, you have and to pay for the week, and, and pay the deposit. Yeah, I know yeah, all about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so the first time I did it, I was like, oh, you know, nobody may book, and I might might just have an expensive week stalking up in Scotland on my Which own. Which would also be fun. <laughs> it should be pretty Invite great. Some mates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Drink some beer um, by the fire. As they turn up, I'd say, oh, by the way, it's going to cost you X amount. Um, so uh, it was a risk, but I have been continuously surprised by how engaged and the kind of hunger for it people are really hungry to get engaged with their food because more now than ever people want to know where their food comes from yeah, they and do. they want to hand either either they want to grow it in their garden mm-hmm. or they want to catch it or they mm-hmm. want to hunt it and that's an amazing thing that's to a, suddenly great. be evolving mm-hmm. you know and uh I think there's a huge, a huge move away from kind of, you know, that cheap shit stuff that people call meat and plastic in the supermarkets, um, to 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 something that you can value more, that you might end up paying more for, but you might eat a lot less mm-hmm. of, and and that's a big win. I think that's a big win for everybody. Well, maybe now that you you might have thought of this already, but um, maybe now that you've got this big bigger baseline of the courses maybe there is a place to start the wild order the original wild order for those people who yeah you know all those people who have been on the course if they've had a great time and they now understand it more probably do want to eat more wild food yeah yeah and is there a way to do it do you know the company maui nui in hawaii i don't you should look them up so um really amazing people that run it and amazing company it's the only source of wild harvested venison in the u.s because they have a totally different system to us you can't sell game the only yeah of course the only source of wild. okay yeah so there you can farm bison for example mm-hmm. but you can't go shoot a bison like with permits and what have you and then put it into a game dealer f- and then get into the food trade. there are no game dealers mm-hmm. they don't exist um, which goes way back to their market hunting era. Yeah, you can't then, sell wild you can't, meat yeah, you, in any you form. You as someone, even with all the tickets, can't go and sell yeah. or or put hand wild, uh, venison, a whitetail, even though the shit You can't even them. barter it, can you? No, you can't oh, you can barter it. You, you, can barter it. it. Okay. You, you can give it to somebody, but mm-hmm. you, you can't sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Maui Nui, because they have this massive problem with access deer in Hawaii, managed to get um, FDA approval. Hmm. Um, there has to be, I, I, I may stand corrected on this because I haven't actually done it there with them, but I think they have to have somebody with them while they're doing the culling for every, but they're doing a lot from. Like a vet or something. Yeah, but it's yeah. like, it's it's not it's not hunting. Absolutely not hunting. Mm. It, it is industrial culling because they have this massive ecological problem there and they will never get rid of all of them and they don't even belong there anyway because they're non-native. Um, and it's all head, you know, clinical headshot marksman stuff. Well, that's very like park deer. Very like park, very like yeah. park deer. Yeah. But they're not in a park. Yeah. They are. They are wild. Yeah. But that goes into the food hmm. chain. But Interesting. They've been incredibly successful, and they literally cannot provide enough venison for the demand that they have. Wow. It's phenomenal. And if you think that they're in Hawaii, their demand isn't in Hawaii. I mean, they have some demand in Hawaii, but most of their demand is mainland U.S. Wow. And they, I, I had some, um, I was in L.A. at the time staying for a while, 
and I had and we did I did a podcast with them. And we were in, uh, at Modern Huntsman, we were doing some work with them as well. And they sent me a shipment, like a <laughs> care package of venison from Hawaii. And it arrives in the polystyrene box with all the dry, with all the ice and it just works. It, it's not cheap. Yeah. It's quite, as you can imagine, just the shipping component of it makes it very expensive. Then, Hawaii is a long way from nowhere. Yeah, should meat be cheap? But it and works. That's the thing. So it would be a way more logistically, a way easier thing to do here. And there is some really good examples of that. Um, do you know? Uh, Trucks. Uh, so no. that's um, Mike Robinson. Yeah. yeah. No, I was actually going to say Churchill. Um, Churchill Venice. I think it's Churchill Venison. I actually went to college with his son. Oh, right. Um, they're over by Danoon Way, so West Coast of Scotland. Hmm. And <clears throat> very similar to Deerbox. You, you can go on their website and you can order Venison. And they did it... Um, I had the opportunity to hunt there many, many years ago. Uh, really, really quite tough terrain in some of those places. I was dying, I remember that day, dragging hinds off the hill. Um, in a place called, I think, Devil's Canyon. Great name, great, <laughs> great name. Um, but they were, they couldn't, they were struggling to make the business work. So mm. they were renting all these this land, some land which I think they had access to or owned. And then they were renting lots of forestry blocks and what have you. And they were just, finding it difficult to make the business work just to taking guests out. And then you can say, well, like a lot of it, how a lot of estates function where you take guests out and then you sell the carcass like we've been talking to a game yeah. dealer and then you get paid fucking nothing for yeah. it. All of the value is in the value add on the venison. So they yeah. took that business like, well, let's not do this. Let's take a huge risk. We're going to build a processing, essentially a processing plant, which has got bigger over time. Mm -hmm. And then you have to employ a butcher, eventually full-time and they process that and you have to get people to go to a website to go and order the stuff or have it in local food shops and there's nobody that lives in that part of scotland so um it's, it's not really passing tourist trade yeah. so it has to work online and it does and they've been very successful that's great which is awesome those stories really fill me with like great confidence yeah but you should have a look at their website um, yeah, if well. you just google churchill venison you'll find it so the, the yeah the original idea going I mean it's kind of off off the brand now but the original idea was to to connect a hunter with mm. with you know somebody that wanted venison in the local area so it kept it very I kind see, of the providence right. yeah, was so very like, I got it from three fields over from exactly, where I live on the edge of the exactly town, yeah. um, but it got into all sorts of complicated issues with kind of because well, um, they can't sell it without all the tickets well there is the, the small um, there is the hunter's exemption. What's a hunter's exemption? The hunter's exemption is a, is part of legislation in the UK, which means you can sell small quantities of venison direct to the consumer. I don't think I knew that. But without any... Without any... Really, what does small mean? Well, and that is where I couldn't, I, I couldn't get over that because it's such a grey area that um, I thought, well, we're going we're gonna to come gonna up against something and, and it's going to be a nightmare. And then I was like, well, we're going to have to have small chiller units all dotted mm. around everywhere and it just all got very complicated. So we cut, that. cut that off. Can you put your arm just on the other side of that cable? I can. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is it rubbing? It just yeah, yeah. makes a noise every now and then. Uh, what a, it's, just, it's such a shame in a way. It's a good exemption, that, because you can... You know, in skin, I didn't can, know you about can it. sell a whole carcass. A whole carcass, obviously, um, but in in small quantities, you can, you can ha have it processed. Hmm. Have you had anything to do with uh, Mike and Deerbox? Or? No, you just know about it. No, I just know about it, and yeah. I just you know, I think it's an awesome. He does a lot of cool stuff on social, actually. Yeah, he's always doing cool stuff. He is doing. Cool. Did you see him riding a around. tank last week. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> he's been on the podcast before, has he? Yeah, yeah, quite yeah. quite a while ago. Yeah, it's um, a great setup. I love. I, I mean, I'd you know. Like you want a tank as well? Oh, I would love a tank. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Um, but I mostly just, you know, I, I really respect that business is just so cool. I mean, I know he's got restaurants and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, it helps a lot, I think, you know. Helps he's been a lot. around a long yeah, time. Yeah. But it's just great to see lots of people doing things for the image of being outside and getting your own food and making sure that the going back to sort of boosting the image of hunting and not being you know a dirty word and and certainly like not so much up here where we're in scotland people understand hunting and the need for it but where i'm from down south below london you know you tell somebody that you're a hunter and they often the immediate reaction is is, negative. A, neg is a negative one yeah. we need to go back to butchers that hung stuff 
in the windows, in the skin, yeah. or or maybe not even in some of the stuff was yeah, they in, weren't skin, taking in the feather. Skin they out. weren't taken in, yeah. but at least full carcasses because it kind of normalizes the fact that this comes from something, yeah. rather than it just being this nondescript blob of bleached um, white chicken breast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I know, and I've met people like this before, and this is no real negative comment on them. It's more a function of how society, where society has got to, where they do not, they, they eat their meat, they eat meat, they don't like handling meat that has any indication that you can tell that it came from... That it was living a, That it was living. Yeah. So even like a, you know, a leg, chicken leg, or a whole chicken is a problem, mm-hmm. because a whole chicken with its little wings and the... Nightmare. Yeah, well, this is where it comes back into the, like the the disconnection, and I really feel like there's a growing disconnect between you know what we eat and whether that's like because you've just picked up a pack of broccoli in plastic mm. or or you know a load of bacon. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's just we are gener- we're so everybody's so busy now that we're just so disconnected mm. from like how our food is grown, where yeah. it comes from, and part of what we try and do at the wild order is like bring that round and make sure people like actually know what it smells like, what it yeah. looked like, how it lived and breaking down those barriers. And that's a huge part of it. And, it and it's not, you know, I mean, it's really not just about going and killing stuff. It's about being out in nature mm-hmm. and exp- and like looking at deer and being, and just and looking being, in a different in, way. being in awe of them mm. and knowing how they live, knowing where they live. And then if you're lucky enough, you, you might take one off the hill and then, and then you can really have great reverence for what you've done. And, 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 and the sacrifice and the sacrifice in every respect yeah. for the people who do it to yeah. put that food on the table, but also the, exactly it is a life that is lost at the end of the day. And I don't even think it's necessarily, a, it, it, in my mind anyway, it's absolutely not about getting everybody hunting, but it is about getting everybody um, to understand that connection, uh, even beyond a wild f- food resource, because we can't possibly su- sustain the world with no. wild. We, we, there is always going to be. We don't want everybody hunting. <laughs> well, it doesn't, wouldn't work. There isn't no. enough space for yeah. everybody to do it. But a greater understanding of food connection. It just so happens that I think the deepest one that you can get is either through. Well, actually, no. I, I was going to say w- w- is through wild resource, but I would say that there is. A, there are people who I know with d- deep care of the husbandry of animals, which I would say are, are equally on a par. Absolutely, It's being lost, I think, because of the big-scale, mass commercial agriculture. But if you find you know, those right farms and those right places that produce produce and they really care about the, the animals that they're looking after and they could, they could walk into you know, one of their small chicken coops and tell you within a second that there's something going on that is not right with yeah. health and they, you know, they need, I don't know, some flea powder or something yeah. in there, some medicine in their drinking water or whatever it might be. And they can tell, not because they had to call a vet in, but because they have husbandry. Yeah. That's a different kind of person. And we're, we're losing that, we, sadly. I mean, in a huge way. And we've been losing it for a long time. Mm. I also think it's it, it goes beyond meat as well. It goes... To, to say foraging mushrooms or which is obviously a growing it is. thing yeah. now but it's it's all that is also about connection and 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 being being in a in a woodland environment or a field environment and just having like meaningful time in nature which is kind of an annoying phrase but I do think there's it's one thing just walking through a park kind of just having a chat with your mate and there's another thing walking through a park or a woodland or a field and, and sort of looking and, and studying and in really truly engaging in in a way that we've been doing for thousands of years. Thousands of years. But and not so much in the last hundred. Well, well not since World War II. It's II-er, just probably. amazing how long all that um knowledge took to build. Yeah. But and how, how quickly, how quick we bloody lost it. Yeah, it only takes you a generation. Literally, yeah. you know, there are some. I've got some neighbours uh, where I live on a farm down in Sussex. They're they're from Eastern Europe. Really great guy called Radic, and great name. He goes out uh, during the mushroom season with his little kids. He knows all the mushrooms. His wife knows all the mushrooms, and you know, you you go down the road to my other neighbours. Not a clue. 
No. Not a clue. And a lot of places, I'm not, I'm not down on the UK and, and the food scene, but we do need to up our, up our connection to nature a bit. I really, really genuinely think that, you know, it's important for, for the future of a lot of things. It is. And, I, and it's so incredibly connected to so many other decision-making aspects that I think people don't realize when we're looking at uh, landscape level choices of rules and regulations around biodiversity, around um, whatever measures are being implemented or have been implemented for climate change, it's all connected. That You can't separate them. No, you definitely Because can't. it is all in the environment and we exist because of nature. In yeah, one, we are part of we nature. We are part of nature. And people can't like, you, get you, that there in There is their no separation. Now. Yeah, exactly. And I think the more that people can connect to that, the more they can say, well, actually, you know what? I, I realize that the reason that you, as a politician, are bringing in whatever it might be for climate change, but do you know how stupid this is for so many other things? And mm. we're seeing this increasingly now, and Sam just, Sam and I just talked about this yeah, a lot, I'm sure uh, so you I did. won't repeat it, but yeah. this clash between um, biodiversity and conservation and climate change mitigation and sometimes they work together and a lot of times now it's just is not making any sense anymore and it is driven as is often the case by over commercialization mm -hmm. and people making a shitload by of money, money. Yeah. Uh, and we all need money to survive but yeah. money and economics ultimately drive everything whether we like it or not yeah and i think that was definitely another another sort of offshoot of the world order is that it's kind of trying to trying to see a future for deer, trying to see a future for people being engaged in nature and, and procuring their food. Mm -hmm. and, and for it not to be, you know, you have to walk through a manicured park. So I would like to see more wild spaces, people engaging it in like a meaningful way, as opposed to, you know, that being frowned upon. And that all goes back into legislation and environmental impact of other stuff and it's all connected it's all connected mm. yeah so what's your future yeah. what's what is your future vision for what you're what you have done very mm -hmm. successfully to this point and what you hope to do in the years to come oh um i mean it's grow i suppose yeah grow i mean it's been it's been a whirlwind honestly it's we've we've kind of gone from nothing to you know suddenly people are engaged and we're kind of you know, it's feed, feeding feeding a beast in a way, which is great. And um, but I, I'm really passionate about sticking to my original idea, which is affordability, diversity, engaging people in nature, and making everything accessible. And I don't do not want to stray from that. It's so hard. Yeah. When you when you try to scale something, you get to that really hard crossover point where you have to start employing people because it's physically only twenty four hours in the day. Yeah. And you can't work all the hours in the day. Yeah. And then as soon as you employ someone, you've got to make some more money to be able to pay them to be able to grow it to get more people in. So I know it's a real challenge. So I know it's, it's not, a real challenge. It's not easy. Yeah. And to stay true to the the original mission. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I'm very lucky because I've got um, Alex and Matt who are amazingly passionate about what we do and you know they uh, they work hard and we all work hard and they don't always work hard for much money but um, they hopefully that will change at some point um, we've made a lot of friends this year Mark um, the Spartan people we've got um, some thermal people on board which all helps um i would a big goal for 2024 is to launch our scholarship scheme so that people can come in even which, if they don't have the resources which we will have hopefully on every experience and course we'll have one fully funded place That's fantastic well done uh we just need to we just need a little bit more backing and, mm -hmm. and then then we'll launch that uh we've just started working well it's not quite confirmed yet so i shouldn't mention the estate but okay we've just we've just about nailed down uh, an agreement with an estate on the west coast mm -hmm. for what we're going to call our adventure series mm -hmm. where we'll be doing uh free dialect free diving for scallops oh amazing lobster, i love that lobster potting mm -hmm. uh hunting wild goats okay 
um, bit of uh, you've narrowed it down a bit there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, it might not be possible. Uh, we'll see. And then, obviously, some some. Well, uh, now you're going to have about a bunch stalking. of people wanting to do this, so you better make it possible now. I know. <laughs> uh, and that should be launching in uh, September, October, and then we'll do another one in November, and then we'll come back to Kildare for the hind season. So that's the kind of the what we're trying to push is kind of we'll have. The Hunters Experience is our flagship. We'll have the kind of adventure series, which will be like a lot, a lot rougher. They'll be cooking on the beach. It will be getting bitten by midges. That will kick some people out of it, obviously. And then um, we also do our day courses down in, in Sussex and our uh, introductory courses in Suffolk at Wickham Vineyards, which I've already mentioned. So though, and obviously we can't scale up our courses too much because it's just not possible without yeah. losing quality. Yeah. So it's a good question, one that I can't fully answer right now, but I think just just growing um, growing within our ethics yep. and within our means and just not, just keeping the quality and keeping, you know, people keep coming back to us. And, that's, and, that, and that means a lot. Um, and I guess we'll just see, see what happens. Well, congratulations for what you've done so far. I think it's fantastic. Thanks. And I hope Appreciate your that. next two weeks are um, as fruitful as the last week that you had. Yeah, um, me too. The weather holds for you a little bit. Yeah, just so that well, it's, it's looking not good. Every day. It's looking good, um, but we'll see. And it's been great to meet you. Man, good to meet you too. Thanks very much.